morning, church. <clears throat> I have the great honor of reading um, today's passage. Uh, it's in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and it reads as follows. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, uh, Jesus speaks of this parable of a master giving three of his servants a certain amount of money. To one he gives five talents, to another he gives two talents, and the third he gives one talent. And he goes away and he comes back a little while later, and the first two are able to double the talents. But the third responds by saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Now, I'm not going to go into a whole sermon explaining this parable, but just one thing out of many things we see in this parable is that the third servant's perception of his master affected the way he stewarded over his talents. In this case, you know, he saw his master to be a hard man and someone to be feared. And so he was too scared to do anything and that ends up costing him. So whether we actively turn this on or off our perception of other people, it affects the way that we act. A similar analogy uh, to the parable can be even just be found with our bosses today. If we think that our bosses are, you know, chill and easygoing, then we might feel more at ease or more free to make choices that we might not normally make with a boss that's super strict. Or even with your friends. Maybe you're the type of person who has different groups of friends, whether that's, you know, your church friends or your work friends or your school friends. And depending on who you're with, it changes the way that you act for better or for worse. And even with family, this happens. Depending on your perception of family, you might take on certain roles or certain mindsets that can influence the way you act around them whether that's immediate family or distant family. And the, true, the same is also true with our relationship with God. Depending on how we view our understanding of the character of God, our relationship with him, and how we live this life in submission to him is going to be changed. If we see God as this harsh taskmaster with no real plan, with no real direction, then it's easy to grow embittered at his commands. Or if we see the Lord as someone who's made salvation possible, but he's overall this distant guy, he's only relevant in this afterlife, then we live like he doesn't really matter. And, how, and we're going to live as if we just do whatever we want. 
But the fact of the matter is, God has revealed himself to us in trustworthy and amazing ways. And those revelations of God should propel us to respond in a certain way. That's not only for God's glory, but also for our good. Last week, we considered all of chapter 9 in 2 Corinthians, and we learned about how Paul is explaining that God's generosity, it produces in us generosity for others. And so he wanted the Corinthian church to give money to the struggling churches back in Jerusalem. And today, I wanted us just to look at verse 8 in particular, which is so rich when we break it down, when it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The message of verse 8 is something that's repeated throughout Scripture in various ways. And we can be sure that this is not just applicable in the act of generosity, but in all of our Christian life. And so we'll be pulling from various parts of the Bible today to consider more clearly the power of verse 8. And so one of my hopes for today's sermon is to, for us to be floored one more time by God's grace. Let the word of God penetrate our hearts that we can walk away encouraged and refreshed and sure of God's love for us this morning. And so as always, before we can rightly think about what does God want me to do, we need to also remember what God has done for us. And so our main point today is this. The grace of God is totally sufficient to supply us at all times for every good work. You guys should have beeping up. <laughs> I don't know where it's going. Sorry. Point one. <laughs> God makes all grace abound. <clears throat> Not me. <laughs> okay. So the resounding word used in verse 8 is all and every. He says all grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times, every good work. And this is meant to show that this is an all-encompassing nature of the work of God in our lives. God, he doesn't just give us grace for salvation to enter into the gates of heaven, but he continues to show us grace day after day in our lives. So that as his people, we can live lives of goodness and of righteousness, even now here on this earth. He doesn't just give us some of his power or some of his grace, but he gives us all grace so that it abounds to us. God's grace is his goodness towards people who didn't deserve it. It's his unmerited favor. We didn't do anything to earn this from God. We didn't do anything to earn his grace. And yet he shows his favor to sinners in many ways in this life. Even those who don't believe him are shown God's or are shown his grace through even just enjoying the life here, through creation, through community, through creativity, through many ways. And this is what we might call his common grace to all of mankind. And that would be part of what verse 8 talks about when God says he's able to make all grace abound to you. But particularly for God's children, his church, we experience a special grace from the Lord 
which we can broadly call salvation in Jesus Christ. And even that, too, is rich to unpack. That it's, again, not just a ticket into heaven, but it includes all the glorious riches of being in a right relationship with the Lord and in his promised presence forever. And so what's included in this grace which abounds? First, what we see is God's love. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. It says, God, or but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The love of God is God's grace shown to us because in, in us, there's nothing inherently lovely. The Bible talks about mankind being caught up in our sins, worshiping lifeless idols over the almighty God, loving lies rather than cherishing the truth, and being enemies of God, dead in our trespasses. And yet God, in his grace, he loved us. And this is not him loving someone who is easy to love. This is not him loving someone who said, I'm sorry, first. Rather, God is the complete initiator of love. And by his choosing, he loves us, not based on what we deserve, but because it pleases him to love us. For us, mustering up this kind of love is nearly unfathomable. Where maybe for our spouses and for our children, we can better understand this kind of unconditional and covenantal love. But the level by which God loves us and shows to his people is beyond what we can fully comprehend and past how we can love ourselves. God's love is evidence of his grace. And because of that grace and because of that love, he makes us alive together in Christ, as he says. If God solely operated just out of what we deserve, then we would continue to be dead in our trespasses. But instead, God, he operates also out of his grace and his love so that he redeems his people, that he makes us alive in Jesus Christ. He puts faith into our hearts so that we can have these opened eyes to who he is. He heals the blindness of our hearts and he opens our ears to receive the gospel with joy so that we can profess this genuine saving faith in Jesus. Another act of God's grace is that he fully forgives us of our sins. That we have Jesus' righteousness placed on us so that we can be in his presence forever. Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 through 22 says, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body by flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The natural outworking of his love and the, is the gift of forgiveness and his righteousness given to us. And it's not just a mere snapping of his fingers and it was done, but it took the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. God paid the highest price to have salvation be actualized so that God may be both just and justifier. 
in providing punishment for sins and being just in that way, but also being the one who saves us from our sins too. It's God's grace that he chooses to pay such a steep price so that we can have this abounding fruit of Jesus's sacrifice. Another grace that we receive is the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we've been adopted as his children to be in his presence forever. Galatians chapter four, verses five through seven says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God, he doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves while we're sojourning here on this earth and waiting for him to return. But he gifts us with his spirit, who then testifies that we are indeed God's children, that we've been adopted fully. And so, brothers and sisters, if we're God's children, we can also then be sure of his love and his watchful eye over our lives every single day. We can have assurance that our prayers, they don't go unheard. Paul's whole point in this passage is to say that we have this special status before the Lord and this privilege of being an heir alongside Christ. So God's grace for us is on full display as he claims us as his own and he promises us eternal life. The same love that the Father has for the eternal Son, he also shows to us as his adopted children. And so I ask you, how have you been resting and rejoicing in God's love lately? Have you thought about his love for you? In your prayers, do you remember that the Lord loves you? That when you come to him in repentance or in supplication, do you believe too that the son is interceding? He's praying for you on your behalf as well. Maybe for us, we've felt distant from the Lord in this season of our lives. Or maybe we feel like, or we have been in a pattern of sin that we haven't fled or shaken. Maybe you haven't touched your Bible or prayed or been committed to the, Christ, to, body, to the body of Christ, the church, for a long time. Let's be reassured again that if we are his children, having faith in the Lord Jesus, that his love has never faltered for us. Yes, it's true that the Lord disciplines us and even has us experience these seasons of difficulty and a fading perception of his presence in our lives. But even his discipline is because he corrects and wants to restore his children, whom he loves. His forgiving pardon, his atoning blood shed for us, his presence through the Holy Spirit are all indicators of his grace for us. And truthfully, this is just scratching the surface. 
We haven't even talked about God's sanctifying work in our lives or how he's sustaining the universe and all things or the comforting work of the Holy Spirit or the mediating work of Jesus or the privilege of prayer and participation in the Lord's Supper and the grace of evangelism. All of these things show God's grace abounds to us. It abounds. And it's shown to us each and every day. And this grace then supplies our every need. And this is our second point. God gives all sufficiency. When Paul says that we have all sufficiency, that word, it also means contentment. And the connotation is that there's this sense of satisfaction or this sense of competence that it is enough, that there's no lack. Like after having one of your favorite meals, you're just stuffed and you can't have another bite. You're completely filled. This sufficiency that Paul speaks of is another way that God gives us grace. He gives us the ability and the aptitude to be equipped for all things. And so this sufficiency, it's, it's not a self-sufficiency, in a way that we become independent of God or independent of others, where so much of our dominant culture, it pushes this idea of autocracy in our lives. And yes, although it's true that God does call us to a Christ-like character like self-control, stewardship, responsibility, even working as to not depend on others, our culture it often overemphasizes that so that we begin to forget our need for the Lord. Where neediness, it's depicted as this undesirable weakness now. And the strong man is the one who's self-sufficient, who has everything together. But scripture, it testifies to, some, to something different, that God has created man to be dependent on him. And the mark of God's people has always been to be within his presence and to be led by the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is about Moses warning the Israelites, do not forget the Lord as you enter into the promised land. And in verse 17 through 19, he says, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power, the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this, this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. God, he's warning the Israelites not to forget that he was the one who brought them into the promised land and that he's going to be the one to continue to provide for them in that land. And then in the very next chapter, God says, that this is not because of Israel's righteousness that he picked them and chose them, but because of his grace. In another text, after the Israelites had sinned against God in the wilderness by creating this golden calf, God, his anger, he, it burns against the Israelites in the wilderness. And he says, you know what? I'll give them the promised land of Canaan. I'll drive out all of the inhabitants. I'll give them that land flowing with milk and honey but his presence will not go with them. And so Moses then prays to the Lord, and he says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, 
Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people of the face of the earth? Moses, he knew, he understood that the Israelites needed the Lord. God, he could have given them all the riches of the world, a land for their own so that they could be satisfied in those things. But ultimately, if God was not with them, then those things were of no lasting good. The things of this world are not the things that will complete our true contentment and our sufficiency. We are not meant to be self-sufficient in this life. And so then how does God show us or have us experience this God-given sufficiency? Probably in ways we don't expect. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9-10. through 10. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here, notice that the sufficiency of Jesus for us, it doesn't make us or Paul immune to weaknesses or immune to hardships. But rather, those afflictions make the strength that God provides to Paul that much more apparent. It's the strength to continue to walk in faithfulness day after day. God's abounding grace in us, it doesn't look like an elimination of hard times in our lives, but rather it's an ability for us to faithfully walk in the Lord Jesus in all times, both good and bad. And in the context, again, of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, God's grace provides sufficiency for the Corinthian church at that time, both in plenty and in want. And he's going to continue to be sufficient for them, even when they generously sacrifice to give to those in need. God's sufficiency, it also comes in the form of his word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. God, he says himself that his word given to us is able to equip us for every good work. When we talk about the word of God being sufficient, what we're not claiming is that it talks about every single detail and every specific thing in our lives. It doesn't have the instructions to build our furniture. It doesn't tell us how to ace our science test or how to specifically allocate our finances. And that's because ultimately in the midst of all of those things, God cares about how we are faithfully living as his people. How are you fighting against your sin? How are you promoting righteousness and justice? How are you expressing love for God and neighbor in all these things? These are all heart issues. And our heart responds dynamically to all these situations in life, even building furniture, maybe especially so and taking tests. The word of God is sufficient in teaching 
and correcting and training us in righteousness in every single circumstance of our lives. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we have all sufficiency in all things, at all times. There's nothing outside of God's rule of authority. There's nothing that God looks at and says, my grace can't help you in that situation. And so we can have confidence that when we pray to the Lord, when we look to him for help, that he truly can lead us in extraordinary ways that we can be carried through faithfully. The psalmist in chapter 121 expresses this kind of confidence in the Lord when he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The same God who's made the heavens and the earth is the same God who helps us every single day in our circumstances. And so God's grace is sufficient for us when we go through the midst of grief, the midst of death, betrayal and loneliness, anxieties and depressions, marital troubles and layoffs. God's grace is sufficient for us when we go through family strife or church dysfunction, through directionless living and through our idolatry. through our sleepless nights or unending work. God's grace is sufficient for us in the seasons where our body fails, or when our bodies fail us, when we go through financial difficulty, when we wake up in the morning and last night's problem is still unresolved, when we feel harassed by sinful temptations, God's grace is sufficient for us. In all of these circumstances and more, in these circumstances that might easily take our eyes away from God and toward self-made or man-made solutions, God calls upon us to lean on him, to remember his grace, and to trust that he is still sovereign over us. And not only that, that we have a Savior who sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God desires for us to draw near to him. So that we can find help. Praise God for that. He doesn't chide us and think, now what's the big deal? But he's tender with us. He gives us help when we need, and he understands what we're going through in our trials. He gives us wisdom and strength that we need to be faithful in every single season of our lives. This is God's grace toward us. And so then how are we to respond with all this talk of grace? Paul writes that in this abounding of grace and all sufficiency in all things and at all times is so that we may abound in every good work. And this is our third point. This last point is key 
to our understanding of God's purpose for us in receiving his abounding grace. We're not just given his grace to be supplied for our self-promoting pursuits, but rather we're given his grace so that we do works of righteousness in the Lord's sight. Again, zooming out in the greater context of 2 Corinthians 9 and from last week's sermon, Paul, he was trying to teach the Corinthians that all the material blessings that they've had is so that they can then be generous and, be give, and give to those in need around them. In this case, supplying for the need of the Jerusalem churches who were going through difficulties. But we could also take this idea from verse 8 and broaden it and see that it's relevant for all the blessings that God has given to us in this life. The Lord blesses us. He's given us grace so that we would live for his glory and that we would love those around us in tangible ways. Paul, he's repeating this theme several times throughout Scripture. And not just Paul, but all the apostles and the Lord God ultimately. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in, him, in them. Here Paul says it's the very purpose of our lives to do good. And these things, these are things that the Lord has prepared beforehand, showing us that it's of his will and that he's going to supply the things that are necessary for us to do the good works, for us to walk in them. Paul, he similarly uses his own life as an example of this that he sees himself as energized by the Lord to do the work of God in his ministry, where he says in the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, he says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul, he recognizes that he's been given God's grace to steward in this life. And the stewarding of that grace is not just for building up himself or living comfortably here, but to then pass it on to the Ephesian church and to the other Gentile churches. Paul dedicated his life so, to the good works that God purposed him for. And this ought to be true for all of us as his people, all of us as Christians. And so what are some of these good works that God has prepared for us beforehand? We'll start generally and go and more specifically where Jesus, he summarizes the law by saying that the greatest commandment is in Mark chapter 12, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus sees that all that we do should fall under these two umbrella statements. When we're considering whether or not we're doing the Lord's will, we can Think about whether or not our actions in our heart are falling in accordance with these principles. But to be more specific, we see other Bible passages also talking about God's work in our lives to then have a godly response. For example, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
the grace of God, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We're called to put to death our sin and to flee from temptations that draw us away from God. We're meant to replace unbridled passion with self-control, replace wickedness with uprightness, and a worldly drive with godly lives instead. Our lives are meant to be characterized by this waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. We have this hope of the appearing of, the God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that's meant to position our lives accordingly, that Jesus is coming soon. And we might hear and think this, yeah, you know, I've heard this all before. But I encourage us to then recognize that the Lord, he doesn't call us to live this way for no reason or arbitrarily, but rather he calls us to live this way because it's the blessed way to live. God directs us to live life in such a way that is not only just pleasing to him and giving glory to him, but also fulfilling to us the way that we are meant to live. Psalm chapter 128, verse 1 says, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. It's this positive affirmation of that kind of way of living. In Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Let's remember that God's love and his grace abounds for us. He does not want to shortchange us in this life. And so when he directs us to live a certain way, in a way that is holy, that abstains from the passions of the flesh, he's pointing us to that which is meant to be more desirable, more pleasing to us as his people. The problem is not with that holy lifestyle, but the problem is our backwards desires. And so we ought to pray for greater grace, for God to transform in us our desires, that it might be conformed to him, that we might walk in them. Further, the good works that God prepared beforehand includes loving and serving others. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The letter of 1 John is all about the love of God received by Christians and how we can be assured that we really have this love and have received this love. And the Apostle John, he speaks that those who know the love of God will then go and sin no more. And secondly, those who know the love of God will then go and love their brothers and sisters in Christ. John says that like Jesus who laid down his life, so we too also ought to lay down our lives for God's people. And though for us, we're probably not in situations where, where we're commonly laying down our lives for others, 
John clarifies that this heart action is seen through our service and supplying for the needs of those around us. We ought not to close ourselves off to those who we see are in need, but instead tangibly care for them. It's seen through a wide range of opportunities. Maybe it's seen through the discipling relationships and working through hard times together. Maybe it's seen through checking in with our brothers and sisters regularly throughout the week to make sure that they're doing okay, meaning they're walking with the Lord, not just feeling good. Maybe this is seen through listening, encouraging, correcting, and rebuking one another in love. Maybe this is even seen through small acts of service, even things like giving rides or helping watch kids, helping with errands or housework or praying with them. The abounding love of God shown to us spills over into our lives, and it's shown in many different ways. But we are called to actively love our brothers and sisters. But the greatest act of love that we can do for others is to point them to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Our acts of love, our acts of mercy, are shadows of the love of God shown to sinners. We have, been, we have received and been transformed by the grace and love of God, and we have to share that with other people. For 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love is intimately tied in with the Lord and his work of salvation. We could do all the acts of mercy and service to others that we want, but we cannot ultimately save them through these things. Jesus must be the Savior and the Lord over their lives. And God gives to us the responsibility and the grace to share to others about this truth. This is the great act of love that we ought to take up as Christians every single day. And even, and I should say, especially in our evangelism, God has shown us grace so that we can go and tell others about this truth. Where Jesus says in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has all authority, and his presence is with us to the end of the age. God is with us, and he is with us in connection with the call for us to make disciples of all nations. We're given his grace, his presence, so that we can confidently do the work of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone around us. This is a good work that is set apart for us as new creations in Jesus Christ. And so as we close, I want to offer a word of encouragement and direction for those of us who are thinking or maybe not thinking, you know, this is all great. Amen. 
I want to love God. I want to love others. But honestly, how do I even get there? First, have you received the grace of God in your life? In other words, have you believed in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? All the good works that we could talk about are meant to come only after we have placed genuine faith in the Lord. These good works that abound are not meant for us to go into, or it's not meant to take us into heaven, but it's a response to what the Lord has already done for us, where the message begins with the Lord God, who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, who created mankind in perfection without sin, so that we might be in right relationship with him. But we as mankind instead sin. We turn away from the Lord, and we earn ourselves judgment for our sins and transgressions against God. But God, in his grace, in his love for us, doesn't leave us there in that place, but instead sends his son, Jesus Christ, to live the sinless life, to die on our behalf, to pay the price of all of our sins. And he rose again three days later to show that he defeated death. And he's now in heaven as we're waiting for him to come again. And so the message is then for us to respond. Do we place our faith in this Jesus Christ who saves us from our sins? Is he the Lord over our lives? Are we believing in him as the one who leads us in right relationship with the Lord? And for us as Christians, if we have received this grace, praise God. Is the Lord Jesus the reason why we do everything that we do? We have to reaffirm our faith in him again. Secondly, let's also pray to the Lord in thanksgiving regularly about his grace shown to us. When we thank the Lord for his grace, we're taking time to meditate on what he's done for us and truly consider these things specifically. Do we practice gratitude for the way that God has been gracious to us in our lives? When we are grateful, our grumbling is softened and stilled. When we're grateful, we're leading ourselves to worship the Lord and ascribe glory to him. When we're grateful, we step away from this self-sufficiency that we're so prone to, and we're recognizing that the sufficiency we have is gifted to us by God. And alongside this prayer of thanksgiving, third, let's pray to the Lord that he might align our desires to his. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Meaning he gives us both the ability and the motivation and the will so that we can pray in confidence for these things. Let's pray that we would have a greater appetite for his grace, to be content, to be sufficient in the Lord. Pray that we might have a desire to accomplish the good things that he set aside before us. Pray that he would open our eyes to the opportunities around us to share the gospel and convict us to be obedient rather than turning the other way. 
pray that the commands of the Lord would be a joy and not a burden. And finally, let's seek the help of the community. God's given to us his body, the church, to live this Christian life together. That we're not meant to go solo here. And even as God makes us sufficient in every circumstance, that doesn't mean he wants us to tough it out alone. Rather, we have brothers and sisters to encourage us in our faith, that we might remember the love of God. We have brothers and sisters to keep us accountable in holiness that Christ calls us to. We have brothers and sisters to pray for us, to pursue good works and also do good works alongside us. The body of Christ is another one of the biggest means of grace that he gives to us. And being committed to the local body not only sets us up for, with support systems, but it allows us to have avenues to love others and also be loved by them. Being committed to the body means that we make our best efforts to live out the principles of God's word together. And so let's rejoice as we remember God's grace abounding to us. That it's his, utter, it's his utmost joy to show us his grace so that we have all sufficiency in all times and at, in all things. It's an all-encompassing grace that we've received. God, he hasn't left us out here to dry in this world, but he's carefully equipped us for everything that we need so that we may abound in every good work. Let's pray. Father, we need more of your grace. And we thank you, God, that you are not someone who is stingy with that, but that you desire to show us your grace. You encourage us to pray for more of your grace. That through your word you show that you have always operated out of your love and grace towards your people. That we might be content, that we might be sufficient for every good work that you prepared for us beforehand. Help us to have open eyes to those opportunities. Help us to be more driven by your grace. To be gripped by it. To be thankful for it. And to live a life that is led by the Lord Jesus. And so we thank you, God. We ask that you would help us to remember this, even as we step out of these doors and enter into our week. May your grace be something that is ever shown to us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.